Hi everyone, welcome back to another episode of our podcast. How are you doing? I hope you are doing well. Today I have the author of the book Diary of a Workforce Manager. Yes, I'm speaking about Tiffany LaRue. She is the owner of Human Numbers, a company that provides forecasts, staffing models and schedules to contact centers. And I'm more than excited to have her here to speak about workforce management and more importantly to share stories, mistakes and things that she has on the book. Join us. Hi everyone, welcome back to, to the show and welcome to the guest. Tiffany, how are you doing? I'm very well, thank you. Thank you so much for being here today. So for everyone joining and tuning in, Tiffany, uh, as you listen in the intro, is someone with loads of experience. I think she has loads of interesting stories. Um, but I wanted to start with our style. So in this corner of the WFM industry, we always ask this question for you to define in your own words, what does workforce management mean to you? And will be no different. So Tiffany, what's your take? Um, so the way that I describe it to my friends and family is that I tell companies how many agents they need so that when you call them, you're not waiting on hold forever. And that's kind of my elevator pitch. And is it, and is it, is it working? I think that there is so many different ways to do it. What's the normal follow-up question they do? Um, so if they're really interested, you know, their mind will start clicking and they'll start asking, well, how do you do that? And is it different by seasons or by days of the week? You know, because they think about their own experience and how they've had mm -hmm. to wait when they've called into customer service departments. And, you know, of course, workforce management is a lot bigger than just that one sentence explanation. But um, yeah, it's, it's interesting because they, it puts it into a category that they can understand themselves personally. Yeah, and it connects to something that they experience on weekly basis or daily basis every time they need to interact. Exactly. Um, super cool. So you have been around, like I said uh, in the intro before, uh, on this industry for quite some time now. I think you saw all the big breakthroughs, the different uh, ways of providing service from email, chat, phone solutions. Um, and in addition to that, loads of different softwares that uh, were brought throughout throughout time, different tools that were used. Uh, and to make a bridge here, you actually published a book called Diary of a Workforce Manager. And I wanted to start there, which is what was the reason that led you to start that journey on writing the book? Um, so I've, um, I've been in contact centers for 35 years and specifically in workforce management for 29 years. So you're correct. It's been a long time. Um, but when I started consulting, I saw other workforce managers that were struggling with the same questions and problems that I had already experienced. Things like, how do I calculate growth rates? Or am I looking at the right metrics? Or, you know, what do I do when everyone hates their schedule and therefore hates me? So my book has a chapter with step-by-step -step instructions on how to develop and facilitate a schedule focus team to solve for that. But um, I've also made plenty of embarrassing mistakes myself. So I <laughs> included some of those as well. Um, and the reason for that is because I believe the nature of this job attracts a very detail-oriented, analytically-minded person. 
And when it comes to the forecast, we may be the smartest person in the room, but we're typically not the best communicators. So building relationships and trust is something I have to keep working on every single day. And as it turns out, that was true for a lot of other workforce managers <laughs> out there. So the feedback for the book has been very intense, very personal, and very positive. Yeah, and and I was uh, I mentioned before to you that I, I started reading your book, uh, and it's interesting that you included those um, in the book because it makes it more real. I think so many times we just go for that perfect setup, everything sounds so easy and you project and like everyone makes it sound so easy, but in reality, there are lots of hiccups and, and I think you you did quite well on, 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 on going and sharing those examples. And I wanted to pick on one of those, which is on the book for everyone listening, it covers from almost every single step from all the forecasting and trying to get the exactly amount of work you will receive. You get from all the, like the schedules, dealing with holidays, dealing with reporting. That communication piece is very well present as well. You touch on best practice. So you, 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 you have a chapter, if I'm not mistaken, just for mistakes. Um, I wanted to ask what's the most common one or the one that, for instance, when you were like trying to write the book, the one that was, oh, this needs to be here. It's like one that everyone will will connect to? Um, from a, a mistake perspective, I guess um, not double checking the work and not visualizing what the end result is supposed to be. And therefore maybe putting too much trust into the tools and the software without validating, does this make sense? Does this actually sound right as a solution? Does this feel right as um, you know, the total number that it's telling me I need to have mm -hmm. or a prediction in what it's going to say. So just applying a reality check based on your own gut feelings and your own intuition as the workforce manager, as opposed to just letting it all happen from the software's perspective. Mm -hmm. I, I think if I'm not mistaken, it's one of the first you, you, you mentioned around uh, data cleaning. So that's one of the, I would say probably one of the number one uh, every time we speak about forecasting or just preparing data is the importance that is around skipping that stage, uh, which mm -hmm. sometimes we just, uh, it's not that relevant, but it actually can lead to different conclusions. Um, how important do you think that one specifically is? Well, it's incredibly important because that data is what's driving the accuracy of the future forecast. So if the data is dirty and it's not normalized or detrended or whatever the case may be, then any forecasting methodology isn't going to intuitively read into that. It's just going to spit out whatever it thinks based on that history. Mm -hmm. So we have to be the ones responsible for making sure that the data that it's using and the assumptions that it's using are the ones that we actually want it to use, mm -hmm. as opposed to just going with natural defaults. I think that ties well with one of the questions that I wanted to ask, which is how critical a good forecast is. Yeah, so um, a good forecast is very critical, but not just having a good forecast, it's also critical that we have the best forecast, meaning that we've chosen the best possible forecasting methodology. So we've collected all the external assumptions about future call drivers, and we're using history with data that's been normalized and detrended correctly. Otherwise, our forecast isn't going to give us the results that we want. But, um, you know, the idea around a good forecast sometimes gets clouded with this idea of forecast accuracy. 
And a lot of people get hung up on the idea that forecast accuracy is going to be a guaranteed metric that you can accomplish if your forecaster is good enough. But the truth is, forecast accuracy is simply a reflection that these calls behave the way we expected them to, or they didn't. Mm -hmm. So when we're talking about contact center forecasting, there's a huge variable once understaffing gets involved because there's a possibility of repeat callers that affect the true demand. And since forecast accuracy is always measured on total calls offered rather than calls handled, the rate of repeat callers is a big factor there. Yeah, and actually, it's it's very interesting you mentioned that one. Uh, uh, and to the audience itself, I think it's very commonly that we project contacts that we receive and we have the different SLAs, the different abandoned rates. And that recontact rate not only pollutes that normal trend of like the normal contacts we'll get based on the actual customer, the true demand, uh, but actually impacts the way we, our perception of service level is um, to a certain extent, like if you actually clean that up uh, and you fix the kind of like understaffing, like you mentioned, um, mm-hmm. there is actually, it's not a direct correlation. Like you don't need to remove, if you improve X amount of people, it just even factual small gains will have a tremendous impact on those values because they move on different directions. So you are increasing service levels, the demand will slow down, getting closer to that true contact rate. And, and that is one of the, most important, I think, factors when you are when we are projecting to clean up the data on the forecasting side. I think it's a, it's a great example um, that you just mentioned. And you, we started with forecast, but forecast is just the, the beginning uh, almost of everything. That is, I'm assuming, probably will share the same. That is as important as is cleaning that up. That will have so many impacts on all the other stages from like reporting, scheduling, etc. Right? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So. Tiffany, uh, going back a bit on your book, uh, and I wanted to to ask because I would love to know about the writing process because writing a book and for everyone, the book is is quite extensive. You have loads of examples. Uh, I wanted to ask about the, the writing experience, the journey about writing, finding uh, how, how, how long did it took to actually produce the book? Um, can you share with us a bit of the insights behind it? Um, So it actually took several years to actually compile the book and get it published. But um, the actual writing process itself was pretty simple because what I would do is I would listen to my network and listen to what are the current concerns out there? What are the questions that I'm hearing when I attend contact center events from other workforce managers? Um, So then as I would come across that, I would actually write short articles And then um, after I got, you know, several articles under my belt, I then compiled that into what makes the book today. So even though the book is divided up into chapters, it's actually compilation of several mini articles throughout my career that I've published. Um, So the, you know, the paragraphs are pretty short and the reading is pretty easy. It's not a hard read at all. It's dry, Mm -hmm. but because it's technical, but um, it's not difficult. <laughs> I, I agree. And there is something that is very clear on the writing, um, which is the love you have for what you are writing. And it's clear listening to you explaining it as well. So I wanted to ask, what do you love about having uh, this career in workforce management? Um, I, I guess the, the main thing I love is that what I'm doing is meaningful work. You know, what what we do as workforce managers 
affects agents, you know, with their schedules. And what we do as workforce managers affects our customers' lives because they don't have to hold as long. And what we're doing as workforce manager affects our company because it means they don't end up wasting money on resources that aren't needed. And they know when they need to hire and when they can allow natural attrition to occur without immediately rehiring. So I love the fact that what we're doing is meaningful to so many different areas. You mentioned a good point. So I don't know if you have that perception or not, but um, it's very common, and you mentioned about this, that we are normally within workforce management, there is this communication gap uh, on how to communicate. But the truth is that the role of a workforce manager is actually much more people-driven and human-driven than technical. I mean, there is a lot of technicalities, but the truth is that the ultimate impact is on, on people, either the customer or the employee. Do you think that humanized version of the the WFM, is that the perception people have about the job itself? Um, I don't think that perception matches. No, I think that we're viewed as a bunch of, you know, number crunchers and data analysts. Um, mm -hmm. And people often miss the fact that we're actually solving puzzles every single day to improve this or that or the other. So I don't, I don't think that the perception is completely understood. And that's why, you know, when I'm, When I tell people what I do, my, my short little elevator speech, it's really concise and short because mm -hmm. when I try to explain it in technical terms, everybody just gets lost. Nobody understands that. And um, I think that's the case for other workforce managers as well. When we try to explain what we do to our friends and family, it's, um, it's, very, it's very difficult to, to convey that. What do you think that could we do as workforce managers to improve? prove that perception gap? Um, well, in the, in the context of our, you know, our job where we're working with different management teams and different management groups, the, the best approach is to make sure that we're always demonstrating the value that we're adding for them. So, you know, if we're working with the quality group, we want to make sure that we demonstrate our value in terms of how we're building schedules allows for the quality group to do their monitoring and their service observing. Or when we're talking with the marketing group, for example, we need to be able to demonstrate, hey, if you can use our staffing models to determine when the best time is to roll out your marketing plans, we'll make sure we have the best number of agents available to react to those type of campaigns. And so that type of collaboration, while difficult, is really the key to collaboration. And, and I love that backwards um, example you just said, which is instead of us having to deal with a marketing campaign that is just misplaced or placed on wherever timing marketing said, thought that was better, is us saying, for us to better serve our customers, this is the place where we'll be at our best capacity We'll be at our best uh, moment so we can support you on your efforts as well. So that creates that working together a kind of mentality that I think it's super important for WFM and the different business areas around it. Do, do you think that opportunity with, with marketing, wh why do you think that it's so hard to, to accomplish that? Is that from the perception of value from marketing to us? Uh, like, I don't know if you have a thought on that, but I'd love to have your insights here. Well, um, you know, a, a lot of times it's just because of the fact that it's a change involved. 
So in the past, marketing has made their decisions based on their certain set of criteria. Now we've got this third party group in workforce management coming in saying, hey, let's add another criteria, which says these are the best times for you to roll out your campaigns based on things like your natural call volume and your net staff and what your service level projections are going to be. So, you know, introducing new change is always um, is always difficult for anyone. I, I totally agree. And I think that change and being honest about it and transparent and, being, and the, that importance on, on the job is, is really critical to, what, to all levels, not only with the partnership of the different teams, uh, as well as in the collaboration with your different stakeholders and the different levels you interact um, a lot. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, I think in your book on the mistakes piece, you also include one point about the importance of being sincere um, and that transparency and how important it is. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that that is a, actually a really good way to close the loop on, on, on those mistakes and those opportunities you listed on, on your book as well. I'm not sure if you want to add up anything. Yeah, sincerity is definitely a key component to collaboration and communication. I agree. Yeah. So we, we spoke briefly about um, forecasting and before we actually record, we, we spoke a bit um, in, other, in other meetings and the conversation we, we spoke is about kind of the wave of that transformational that you mentioned have been here for a long time. So different channels, people get stuck on multiple approaches. I think on the book, you also cover uh, multiple channels and skills and all that complexity, the importance of handling correctly that complexity. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wanted to to ask a bit about what's kind of like the best approach on, on your view? So what kind of risks no one speaks about when aligning that process of forecasting and planning, having into consideration this multiple channel uh, parity and, and the different wave of, of technology channels? So from a forecasting perspective, not from a scheduling perspective, but for the forecasting part, it's almost done identically to traditional phone channels. And when we're talking about, you know, we've got multi-skilled scheduling scenarios, that's when it becomes a lot different for the scheduler side. But the first step in forecasting, um, it's pretty much identical with just a few adjustments that I make. So, um, for example, some channels allow for simultaneous work. So, like, for example, you can have more than one chat going on at the same time being handled by the same person. If that's the case, there may need to be a simul skill factor applied that reduces the total number of people that we're going to say we need. But before we automatically take that extra savings, it's important to qualify that there's really enough volume offered in the first place for these multiple chats to actually happen. And unfortunately, that's the kind of analysis that needs to be qualified for every single interval, you know, before we can get that extra savings. Um, A second example is that anything that has a service goal greater than 24 hours gets measured with a response time calculation instead of the traditional service level or average speed of answer calculations. So there's a different mathematical formula to calculate response time than we use for service level in ASA. Um, Mm -hmm. And then um, another one I can think of is that when we're talking about non-phone work, we may have to include backlog volume that remains unworked from the previous day or the previous week. And so just having a process to make sure that the volume isn't double counted, but it still shows up as ongoing work until it's Mm -hmm. actually closed out. Um, And then there's also some small nuances like 
using higher handle times for a video call because talk time tends to be longer when there's eye contact involved. So just, um, you know, adjusting it to the situation, I guess. I like the the example you just made um, a, few seconds, uh, a few minutes ago about the different examples. And I think that one about the fact that it's a synchronous and the backlog exists uh, and backlog management many times is one of the reasons some teams fail because you project the income of new contacts, but you forgot that there is a long tail of contacts that probably you couldn't solve at first attempt. Um, and backlog management is actually uh, an important topic. Any recommendations you could kind of like share uh, on, on to the, all the planners out there about how to handle like this backlog uh, part of the equation? So um, if you're trying to do it using workforce management software, I would say my recommendation is be aware of the shortcomings and the risks in that software when it comes to that stuff. So for example, um, if you're understaffed and your customer calls in and then they hang up, which is an abandoned call, there's no guarantee that they're going to call you right back in that exact same interval. So that means that their second call may show up in the next interval or later that day, or maybe the next day. And WFM software doesn't plan for that. It ignores it. Um, or if you're understaffed and your customer calls in and decides they're just going to hold for the next available agent, there's no guarantee that that's going to happen in the same interval either. So if they're still holding when the interval changes over, say at the top of the hour, then that becomes carryover volume, which increases the workload for that interval. And WFM software doesn't plan for that either. So understanding the risks that your software may not be um, looking at everything in a realistic way. Actually, I think that's a very interesting tip, um, which if you allow me to repackage it, is regardless of the tool you use, and there are many different tools in the market, you can even <laughs> have some kind of proprietary tools that can be built by yourself, is like really having the deep knowledge of how your tool handles those edge cases is mm -hmm. critical for you to know which recommendations and what recommendations you should provide or what actions you should take. Otherwise, you would be kind of like ignoring a lot of factors that goes into the interval level planning. Yeah, so that's, a, that's a perfect way to rephrase that. Absolutely. <laughs> and I mean, uh, those are just a few of the reasons that we choose to do everything in Excel. And then we import our results into WFM software to let it do the heavy lifting of real-time management and adherence tracking. But um, it's unfortunate that WFM software companies haven't addressed some of this stuff already. You know, so much of their energy and time is spent on AI forecasting when they could honestly just get a lot of improvement if they would go back to the basics to really understand the nature of the contact center customer and their behavior. Oh, I love that one. I think that the basics are so many times ignored um, and they are so critical to, to the bread and butter of what workforce management is. Uh, that is actually shocking that uh, we spend too many times speaking about the future, but we forgot that there is already something here that we actually need to nurture and, and, and evolve as well. WFM software has same access to the exact same data that we have. And it just doesn't feel right that my Excel forecast still outperform this expensive software's forecasting engine. You know, it should be the other way around. Yeah. Yeah. When, and especially I think the fact that there is another part of flexibility. I'm not sure if you agree, which is 
it's it's uh, 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 to give to all the different vendors out there is like I know it's hard to prepare for every single use case um, because industry changes, different requirements change. But the truth is that one size fits all. I don't think it's a good approach. Uh, so allowing some flexibility on the forecasting side to create to elaborate the models or try to tailor to the business, I think it's super important to get them to compete and get more tailored results, um, like you were describing. Otherwise. It's easy to beat, uh, and that shouldn't be the case, right? On the investment exactly. that you do. So, to pick a bit on, like, I think we're having an amazing conversation here about the, the opportunities. I wanted to kind of roll a bit over on the career you had so far. So, there's a lot of different people starting to make their own career within uh, workforce management, developing now. I wanted to ask you, how big do you think the opportunity is for someone to actually have a, a career in this industry? Um, so I think it's a lot easier now than it's been in the past. Um, the horrible attrition that we experienced during the pandemic turned the contact center industry into a market that favors the employees. So anytime anyone's looking for a job and asks me to be a reference for them, I always remind them that now is the time to also negotiate for additional non-salary perks like reimbursement for ongoing training, which is typically something that's very hard for workforce managers to get, or getting your company to pay for memberships to groups and organizations, and even negotiating your hardware, like your monitors and your mouse and your keyboard to make sure all of that stuff is up to speed, because those are things that are important to us um, and to our daily comfort in our daily jobs. I have a special mouse that is made by Logitech that I insist on using because it has custom macro keys that work in Excel and a horizontal scroll wheel. So, you know, now's the time to be um, asking for the moon, really. <laughs> Those small details make a ton of difference in your ability to to deliver. Um, good good trick, good good tip. Um, do you th do you think that? specifically on that kind of like development of the career, do you think there is enough? Uh, so your book is probably, I would recommend everyone that is starting to get the book. It's loads of interesting facts and, and knowledge. But I, I didn't ask this question before. And do you think there is enough knowledge for someone to develop by themselves uh, in this WFM space? Um, by themselves, meaning they're not being formally trained by Yeah, if, if someone, else? they just says, okay, I want to explore that career. Where can I get kind of like trainings and different kind of content to develop alone? Because many of different like roles mm -hmm. you can search on YouTube and get like courses online and things for free. But in WFM, it's really hard. I think still a lot of people learn by starting on the job and then getting groomed up. So I wanted to have your thoughts on that development piece that I think is still kind of somehow open in the market. Sure, sure. So there's two different kinds of training. First, there's software training of this specific WFM software that you have to use. And that means what are the keystrokes? What keys do I need to hit in order to build a forecast or generate schedules? Um, then there's also training in that what do I need to spend my day doing? How am I going to be a productive member of my team in order to get the deliverables out? Um, so in terms of the software training, that's simply looking at the user manual. And there's, I, I can't think of a single vendor that doesn't have actually free access to their user manuals online in today's world. Um, in terms of the other type of training, there's a lot of organizations 
that have networking events and have ongoing training opportunities that um, I think it is possible to to be able to self-learn this job. Mm -hmm. There is no college course for workforce managers. And um, yeah, and so um, there's there's the matter of how do we get to the point where we're able to re-deliver what the last person was doing versus how do we actually train ourselves to make sure that we're using the best possible resources to our abilities? You you know what? I I never thought about what something you just said, which I think it's fascinating to see, which is I never thought to research on the different vendors and go to the manuals of those softwares to actually learn. Uh, and I think that's actually a very nice hack that most people forget. Uh, and they just they just look into those when they actually need to learn the software. But there is actually learnings about what the BFM is about that is actually within those manuals. I think that's a very interesting tip. I, I love that one. Never thought yeah. about that, Tiffany. I also just recently learned, and by recent, I mean, this is like in the last 60 days, I recently learned there's a WFM Reddit feed where people can just go in and ask WFM questions and the community will answer their questions. And it is not specific to software vendor. It is not specific to level. It is just a, like a, every other Reddit feed out there. So mm-hmm. yeah, there's there's resources available for sure. Yeah, I think it's just go and find it and seek uh, the information you need. So for everyone developing, uh, mm-hmm. do your research and for sure there are opportunities for you to develop your, your current knowledge. Tiffany, we we are almost ending the time here, but I, I still wanted to ask you two more questions. One is, who are the people that inspired you the most and why? Um, so I knew that that question was coming <laughs> and I remain inspired by a man by the name of Marshall Lee who is a leader in the WFM world to many of us. And I quoted him in my book after I heard him speak. And he said, I wrote it down, be the one person in the call center who can always be honest, no matter what. And with no secrets, always let people know when you accidentally make a forecasting error. And I just thought that was the perfect advice because the nice thing about our job is we can always let the numbers do the talking for us. We don't have to hide behind anything. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's that's inspiring, um, and 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 I have to say that what you just said, um, for for at least touched me on on the fact that back, I think you we mentioned this about being sincere in the uh, previously, and that transparency is so critical when you are trying to build that trust relationship because in the end of the day, your our job is to actually help project what the future looks like. And if you if cannot be trustworthy, then there is actually a gap in the relationship that we are starting from the get-go of untrust, uh, not trusting each other. So I think it's super amazing feedback, and I think that should inspire more more people. My last big question, and we, you, we briefly touched on this, which is if you had no budget limitations, so resources, money, time, you, could, you can source everything, what would be the one thing you would fix for the WFM industry? So um, if there, if money was no object, then I would spend my time building full service workforce management teams for our new 988 lifelines, which are the national emergency hotlines in the United States that we set up as an alternative to calling the police for mm-hmm. non-criminal emergencies and suicide prevention. And they rolled out a lot of these contact centers last summer. 
in response to things that were happening in the States at the time. Mm -hmm. Um, But these centers are very understaffed and underfunded. And these are not the kind of callers that we want holding for long periods of time. You know, they're callers for help with mental health issues, suicide prevention, you know, things, things where they need, they need assistance. So if I had the money, I would use my expertise to build a staffing model and schedules so that we could get these very important call centers on track. Tiffany, I couldn't ever imagine a better way to end the episode today. Uh, <laughs> loved your idea to fix in the industry. Loved the vision behind it. And once more, in the name of WWFN, thank you so much for being here today and sharing your experience and ending in such an inspiring note. Uh, there is nothing I could have asked for. Thank you so much, Tiffany, for, for the time today. Any final words? <laughs> Well, thank you for inviting me to participate in this. It was interesting. Thank you. Thank you so much. And for everyone out there, please stay tuned for future episodes. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to WWFM. This podcast is made and produced by Andrea Leitão, Bilga Hentelun, Doug Carsten, Gonçalo Gomes, and Kim Paz. If you like this show, don't forget to share it with your friends and colleagues. Visit our website, wwfm.com, to find more exclusive interviews and WFM content. See you next time. All rights reserved.